Morning, people of God. God is good, isn't he? I'm so thankful for this church. Um, As Thaddeus was saying, we moved here a year and a half ago to plant a church because my life has been changed by Jesus. Our church mission statement is very similar to yours. We exist to see humble hearts transformed by love. And that's what Jesus does, isn't it? I have been changed by the gospel. That's the reason that I'm here. And we're gonna open God's word together today. Um, But first, before we do that, I I just wanna thank this church for what you have been to my church, Landmark. When we moved in uh, into your facility a year ago, almost a year ago, we were in a season of just feeling really tired. We had been doing the church in the box for a little while, which for those of you not familiar with church planning, what that means is that every week we would drive out to this wedding venue and, and super sweet people, but there was just a lot of logistical issues. We were in a place where we weren't really experiencing a lot of growth. We were sowing a lot of seeds, but not seeing a ton of fruit from that. And we were just tired. And we came to this place a little beat up. And coming to the Springs, having this facility, having the friendships that we've found along the way has been a place of healing and growth for us. Uh, We've doubled in size since we came here which before that, I mean, we went from 20 to 40, so we're killing it. Um, We went from five to 10. Um, Yeah, but we've doubled in size since we got here. We uh, just emotionally, spiritually have come together as a group. And so much of that is through your church's generosity. And so I just wanna thank you. We have been blessed. Even if you didn't even know we were here, we have been blessed by you guys. And I hope, like, like we were talking about, I hope that our church, as we grow in this relationship together, can be a blessing to you. So we're going to look today in Philippians chapter four, and we are going to talk specifically about the idea of worry. So if you wanna open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter four, here's the, the context that we're walking into when we read this book. Philippian, Philippians is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi while he was in prison. Okay, so that's where Paul is coming from. He's been in prison and he's writing letters to different churches in the same period we believe he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, a lot of good stuff. And he's writing to this church uh, that's in a very wealthy community, a very well thought of community. But this church specifically in this community that they're in is facing persecution. They're looking at suffering loss because of their faith in Jesus They have people coming from the outside trying to preach a false gospel. And so Paul's writing to them to remind them of their hope in Jesus, to remind them where they came from and to call them to continued steadfastness. And the theme of this book, what's so amazing about this book, and if you read through it, you will see it over and over again. Paul says one word, rejoice. Rejoice, people of God. Coming from a man who's in prison, doesn't know if he's gonna live or die. And so what we see throughout this letter is that the theme of God's, not just the church in Philippi, but of God's people in many ways in this life is joy in the midst of suffering. Embracing the reality of the kingdom, like we were just talking about, but in the midst of seeing like, we're not there yet. All around us every day, I'm reminded of the fact that we're not there yet. But yet God is good. And so there's this tension in my heart between faith and worry. 
And that's what we're gonna look at through God's word in Philippians chapter four today. So can we stand together and read God's word? This is Philippians chapter four, beginning at verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's word, amen. Amen, you can be seated. Father God, we ask that you would teach us through your word now. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Help us to see you and change us through the power of your word in Jesus' name, amen. I remember very vividly, my first real panic attack. I always struggled with anxiety growing up. I was a fairly anxious child. I was the kind of kid who would get sick for his own birthday parties, not because I was super stressed. I was just amped up. That's how I am. But when I was in my very early 20s, something different started to happen. I got married to my beautiful wife. She's sitting right there. She's awesome. Before our one-year anniversary, like at 11 months, we had our first daughter, wasn't prepared for that. I started my first job in ministry as a high school pastor, wasn't prepared for that. And I started having some really severe health issues. Uh, I've been diagnosed with what they would call peripheral neuropathy and chronic fatigue syndrome, which means they have no idea what's going on in my body. There's just some stuff that's not working great. And I started dealing with this all at, pretty much at the same time. One of our best friends died of cancer. Uh, I think she was 21, 22, very young. And I started for the first time in my life, not just feeling somewhat anxious at different times. I started being controlled by worry, controlled by, by what was going wrong in my body and not having an answer for it, controlled by, by relational issues within my ministry because I walked into a ministry that had a lot of healing to do and it was messy and I didn't know how to solve these problems and people were mad at me and I didn't know what to do. We had a daughter. I wasn't sleeping very much. I didn't know how to be a dad. All it did was highlight my weakness and, and, and more than any point in my life, I was kind of falling apart. And I remember I I led worship. It was actually for our friend's funeral because I was a worship pastor also. I led worship for our friend's funeral and I walked off stage and I was at a very large church at the time and people were walking up and talking to me and sharing condolences or asking me questions. And I could not even focus on what people were saying to me. I had the tunnel vision of anxiety and I went and I hid like behind this building and I just sat in a ball and started hyperventilating. So when we talk about worry today, you need to know you're not talking or you're not hearing from someone who who has experienced it from others' stories and is just imposing it on. Like I have experienced the pain of anxiety. And as I've looked back and considered the root of my struggle in this area, I realized that so much of it has come from the fact that too often I have struggle to come to grips with or lift my eyes from broken things I can't control. 
And this, I, I believe, is the heart of anxiety. And in this, we realize that anxiety is the natural mindset of a fallen world. In fact, our world, it, it breeds anxiety and it abounds in bad solutions to fix it. Distract, retreat, numb, repeat, do it again. That cycle. That's what we're offered. And it's, it's not good enough. If you struggle with this, you know it doesn't work. And maybe for you, it's not all out panic attacks. Maybe, maybe it's just running to things you shouldn't to try and manage what's going on in your mind and heart. Maybe it's a, a mind that's racing in thoughts that, that rule you and you can't let go of. Maybe it's shaking hands. Maybe it's a temper that you can't control. However it manifests, whatever it looks like, I'm guessing you know how natural and almost unavoidable anxiety is in this age of broken things and how all-consuming it can be. Yet in Scripture, we're confronted with what is both a compelling vision and a seemingly impossible command. Do not be anxious about anything. And in a world where we're so often taught that our desires and our struggles are beyond our control, this commandment can sound at worst cruel and at best unrealistic. Does this mean we can't ever be deeply troubled or, or, or feel physiological stress? I, I don't think it can mean that, right? Because our Lord and the apostles felt both. They wrestled with these things. And to live in this world will cause both, won't it? We will feel deeply troubled by what we see as God's people remaining in a world that is still broken. Our bodies will fail and oftentimes betray us. So it can't mean not feeling any of that. So what does it mean? I think it means this, as the people of God, we are both compelled and invited to be free of a life controlled by worry. And as those who have struggled with real anxiety or worry for any length of time know, it always seeks control of my heart. It always seeks for my responses to come from that place and not from what God has said. And our God would have us be ruled by nothing but him. And even so, especially for those of you who may feel powerless today, this command may seem burdensome. Be anxious for nothing. You may ask, how, how is that even possible? But what I'm convinced of and what I'm excited to share is that by the grace of God, this command is neither cruel or unrealistic. Rather, it is an invitation to full a life full of and founded in the promise of God. Because in a world which breeds anxiety, in a world of real trouble, get on your phone for 10 minutes, you'll know that our world is full of very real and troubling things. In a world that is full of that, stuffed to the brim with that, one great and precious truth gives us hope for peace. The Lord is at hand. And because he is at hand, we must be free from worries reign. And so I wanna to share today four implications of what that means that he's at hand. Let's look back at Philippians chapter four. It's really interesting. What I saw as I was reading this is I see several commands 
I see one declaration, and then I see one promise. And the commands are, are things like rejoice always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Do not be anxious, but rather in prayer, let your requests be made known to God. And the declaration of truth, which founds and grounds and, and supports all of this, is the Lord is at hand. Look what Paul says. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, verse five. And then he follows it with, the Lord is at hand. And it's so interesting to me that in this passage where Paul is saying, this is what a life responding to who God is, this is what it looks like, don't be anxious. It's so interesting that the truth he gives them, that he leaves them with, is the fact that our God is at hand. And what that means, and this is my first idea, if God is at hand, we must rejoice in him. I think this is one of those challenging things we hear. You know, if you're anything like me, when, when someone says something like, oh man, don't, don't be sad, rejoice. Or don't be worried, rejoice. I always, there's a part of me that says, okay, that's great. If I could just rejoice, I would be. I don't feel rejoicing right now. But it's so interesting to me because the way the scripture says this is it is an imperative. It's something we have to do. Rejoice, people of God. Why? Because he's at hand. And why does his being at hand produce in me the necessary response of joy, rejoicing? And it's because of who God is. I mean, think about this. We are the people of God. We believe in a God who is all-powerful. He is all-loving. He is good in everything that he does. And we believe that rather than staying up in heaven, that God has come to broken and fallen people and extended his love and been present with us and redeemed us from our sin. That is the truth that we are here under today. And when I look at that truth, which is universal and cosmic and all-consuming, and I look at my life and the problems of my life, what I realize is if I really, really believe this about who God is, then nothing in my life, no matter what happens, can steal my joy. Because he is bigger and better. And he can't be taken away from us. An all-powerful, unbelievably good God has come for his people. And this reality has to create in us hearts which can in all things rejoice. Look real quick in Philippians chapter one. As I said, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He does not know if he's going to live or die. Paul is a man who grew up probably in a very wealthy family and came to know Jesus. And rather than getting more wealth, and more popularity, he has systematically lost everything that he once knew. He's broke in prison. He talks about later that like, he feels like all his friends have left him. Paul has lost a lot because of Jesus. And listen to what he says, starting in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what the reality of our God being at hand does in a person. I can look and say, dude, you can take my house. You can take my freedom. You can take my money, which they are doing because of the gas prices. You can take everything you have. Take everything that I have. You cannot take the reality of Jesus away from me. And so in all things, I can rejoice. Joy is anxiety's kryptonite, right? Joy in the greatest good robs lesser worries of their power. If we wanna be people who are free from the control of worry, we have to be people who rejoice. And we know this, right? One of the most common ways of dealing with worry is in pleasure or comfort. What do I do when I'm stressed? I eat things I shouldn't and I watch a lot of Netflix. Like this is the common way we handle our worry. Some people work out. I don't know why, I don't understand it. But like, this is how we process with pleasure. But here's the problem. Though we know joy is the kryptonite of worry, so often we choose lesser joys that won't last. We choose joys that fail us. Having our joy founded in anything but the one thing is an invitation to worry because when that joy leaves us, when it's not enough, when it dries up, which it always does, I am left worse than I was before. Joy is like, like a well-built house on a stormy night, right? Like we had that storm that blew, blew through here. Man, I, I heard the thunder. I could kind of hear the wind on the windows, but I slept pretty well. I actually slept better. It was nice to hear the sound of the rain on my roof. That's what joy is like when it comes to a world of worry. It's saturating, it's encompassing, it's protecting. The storms of life are real, but they don't overwhelm us when our joy is complete. But too many of us spend our lives seeking shelter in shanties, in tents of joy, when we have in our midst a strong tower. God has invited us to seek the shelter of joy in him, and that shelter is never shaken. And so many of us live living in these tents of joy, which as soon as a storm comes, they're done. And so as I look at Philippians 4, the question for you, for me, for us, is what's your joy's foundation? What have you been founding your joy in lately? What comfort or pleasure do you turn to when you are assailed by worry? Is it your, your job? Is it that number in your bank account? Is it TV? Is it your spouse? What is the foundation of your joy? If we wanna be people who are free from the consuming worry of this life, we must rejoice in the Lord first and always, which means we have to ask ourselves, is he above everything else my joy? Because even good things, they won't last. One thing remains, and he is at hand. That's the truth, which is the foundation of this passage. It's the foundation of our lives. God is at hand. 
It's the foundation of our joy, and it's the foundation of our testimony. This is the second thing I see in this passage. If the Lord is at hand, we must have a witness of peace. This is super interesting. Look at verse five. Paul doesn't just say in this passage where he's telling us what it looks like to walk in the peace of God. He doesn't just say, be reasonable. What does he say? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let it be known. And this is really interesting to me. What, what does reasonability mean? As, as you break into the Greek, what you see is this word means, it's like tranquility or gentleness. What Paul is saying is people, when they see you, let them see this reasonable, unshakable tranquility. It's the outward manifestation of an inward peace. Let people see that in you. Why? Why must we be known as reasonable, as peaceful in response to God's being at hand? And what we have to understand is that as we are in an anxious world, one of our greatest testimonies to God's reality and majesty is our reasonability, our tranquilness, our contentment. In a world that is consumed by worry, when you and I are people where no matter what else is going on, when it feels like everything else is falling apart, when we hear wars and rumors of wars and there's sickness and death, and when we are people who are unshakably rooted, God is made to look glorious then it's not a delusion, right? It's not faking. It's not denying that there's anything going wrong. It's, it's recognizing it. It's seeing it. It's grieving it. But it is looking to something greater. And when people see this in us, and I don't know if you've experienced this in your life, but when people see this in us, believers and unbelievers alike are compelled to ask us the question, where does this peace come from? I mean, really, you guys, at funerals, we look like crazy people. Because when we are grieving the loss of someone who is in Christ, we are grieving, but not like those without hope. We're celebrating too. That doesn't work if death is all that there is. And so when you and I, when we lose our jobs, or when our homes burn down, or when a loved one dies, when you and I are rooted when we're getting screamed at in traffic or when one of our neighbors responds poorly, when we are rooted to something greater, the people who see that have to ask, why are you reacting like this? And I can say, because the Lord is at hand. But when we claim an almighty God who is at hand and when we claim that he's victorious and he cares for us, but we are consumed by worry, the people who witness that in us, they're called to question what we believe. When I respond like everybody else who doesn't have my hope, people are forced to say, oh, see, they, they may claim to believe in an almighty, all-powerful, all-good God, but they're just like me. We have to have a witness of peace. This is like a man and his friend driving down the road together, right? The friend is in his other friend's car and he's looking around, it looks like a nice car. And he says, hey, I'm looking for a new car. How do you like yours? And the man replies, I love it. It's rock solid. I can take this thing anywhere I need to go. And as they're driving up to the base of a large hill, the man turns his car around and heads back home. And the friend asks, why did you turn around? And the man looks at him and says, well, I, I was just worried it might not make it up the hill. 
There's a dissonance, right, between what was claimed and the confidence it produced. It doesn't matter how much he boasted about how confident he was in his car. It didn't matter how much he said, oh, this thing's rock solid. It'll take me anywhere. What mattered most was what he did when the test came. And instead of having a witness of confidence, a witness of peace, he showed a witness of worry. And Christians, as people who claim a good and all-powerful God, our testimony is much the same. What do we do? When things go wrong, are we known for a witness of peace or a witness of worry? Are people confounded by our peace or is their doubt confirmed by the fact that we respond to worry the same way as everybody else? Because if the Lord's at hand and, and we're his people, then our lives must be known for the profound, sometimes confusing peace that we experience. And if we're not, the question becomes, do the responses of my life reveal a discrepancy between what I claim and what I believe? This is an area I'm constantly invited and challenged to grow. Man, it's so easy to set off my worry alarms. I have one bad budget month and the sky's falling. And I forget, Jesus said, look at the sparrows. I take great care of them and you're way more important than them. Why are you worried about this? I challenge you to think about your life and to think about the things which cause you the most worry and compare them to the reality of God. The Lord is at hand. And that means that if we have been found in him, our life has to look different because our hope is different, amen? And this leads us to the truth that if the Lord is at hand, we must practice thankful dependence. Look at what Paul says, verse six. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, Paul, I mean, you know, I have some real worries that you didn't have to think about. No, he says, be anxious about nothing. But in everything, instead of that, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So don't be anxious. What do we do instead of anxiousness? We pray. How do we pray? What does it look like? We're not demanding. We're not complaining. We're thanksgiving. That's the posture. That's the garment we put on when we pray, a garment of thanksgiving. And what do we do? We let our requests be made known to God. Why must we pray? Why must we be thankful? First, why do we have to approach with thanksgiving? There is a fundamental truth that we have to understand when we pray. And if we miss it, it's gonna change and probably ruin the way that we pray. People of God, you and I, in Jesus' name, have much to be thankful for. That goes from the most in the world, right? Prosperous to the most lowly of us. We have much to be thankful for because of who Jesus is, because he has called us by name because he has loved us, because in him, life begins now and it goes on forever. We have much to be thankful for. And so when we approach God, we have got to begin with thanksgiving. And we must pray rather than be anxious because prayer is powerful and anxiety is crippling. 
Prayer is powerful. Prayer does a couple things in my life. It changes my perspective, right? Prayer is the opposite of anxiousness. Thankful prayer begins with why I'm blessed. Anxiety begins with what scares, overwhelms, worries, or concerns me. Thankful prayer entrusts my needs to God. Anxiety carries the weight of resolution. So much of my anxiousness is like, how am I gonna fix this? What am I gonna do about this? And prayer goes, God, I can't do anything without you. You gotta take care of this, otherwise I'm dead. Prayer gives perspective. Anxiety is a product of fear. Prayer is a practice of faith. Thankful prayer humbles me and helps me rest in the Lord. Anxiety drives me and steals my rest. I think of Psalm 127. If the Lord does not build the house, we labor in vain. And if anxious living is a preoccupation with what I I can't control, then prayer is the humble, thankful release of those things into the care of God. Isaiah says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. It's not that his situation changes entirely. There's still stuff that's worrisome. There's still things that get to him. His body still betrays him from time to time, but you keep him in perfect peace because his mind is fixed on you. The second thing, why we must pray. Prayer doesn't just change my perspective. Prayer is effective. Prayer works because God hears his people. And he answers because God has chosen in his amazingness to work through you and I in our prayers. One of the most amazing things about my kids is that they know where to go when they're in need. My, my daughter, Olivia, she's over there. You probably have heard her screaming at some point in this, but she's five and she does not try to meet her wants or needs on her own. Sometimes I wish she would, that might be nice. She doesn't try to do that. She has no pride. She doesn't toil. She doesn't sit and worry about things. She tells dad everything that she needs. She doesn't go to her two-year-old brother. She knows that's ineffective. She comes to me and she knows he's either gonna say, yes, darling, I know you need that and I will get it for you. Or I'm gonna say, honey, you don't need that. I'm not getting it for you. And then she can move on with her life because she knows Though she may be disappointed for a few minutes, there's no more worry about it because she knows dad heard what I asked him for. If he says, yes, I will have it. And if he says, no, no amount of worry, frustration, or toil is gonna change that. That's what prayer does. She depends on me, unashamedly, thankfully, peacefully. And so many of us, so many people who claim and know Jesus and are invited into this, we spend our lives restlessly toiling, trying to meet the needs that God would meet in our own strength or trying to acquire things he doesn't want us to have, worrying about them or trusting people to do what only God can do. And this is a recipe, hear me, this is a recipe for a life of worry. God would have us be free of that. Who do you turn to when when you have need? What's, What's my first reaction? I think about this all the time. 800 years ago, if I ran out of money, I'm praying or I'm gonna starve, right? What's amazing about the world we live in now, I have this thing called a credit card. 
And if I run out of money, I don't have to think about it that much yet. If I get sick, I can go to the hospital, even if I don't have the money to pay for it, and a doctor will take care of me. My car breaks down. I'll buy a new one. Even if I have no money, somehow they still sell me these things. And and the problem with that is not that we have resources at our disposal. The problem is if we're not careful, we'll stop asking for help from the only one who can help us. And we'll just assume we know the way. Think about this. When your car breaks down, do you pray for a miracle? Or do you call a tow truck? That's the difference. There's a blessing in having options, but there's also a very, very real danger. It's not sinful to be concerned with concerning things. It's not wrong to work hard. It's not wrong to make use of worldly institutions, but it is devastating to put our trust and our labor in the systems of this world because when it matters most eternally, they will fail. We have to be more prayerful than anxious because that's what we've been offered. That's what God commands. And because prayer is powerful because our God is powerful. Man, what would it look like? What, what difference would it make in your life if every time you were confronted with something worrisome, something concerning, if every time you felt anxious, you stopped what you were doing and went through the painful process of giving thanks to the Lord and asking him for help? What if we became people like that in everything? That's what God's inviting us to because he's at hand and our prayers matter. And the last observation I have from this, and this is the hope, this is the promise. If the Lord is at hand, we will have preserving peace of heart and mind if we are in Christ. This is what's so amazing about this passage. Look at the last verse, verse seven. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, if you learn X, Y, and Z, the peace of God may. He doesn't say, the peace of God could. He says it will. This is the inheritance of the people of God. Paul isn't incentivizing us with a possibility. He is informing us of a reality for those of us who are in Christ. You need to hear that. That is your reality in Jesus' name. The peace of God will be, must be our guard. Why? Because this is why Jesus came, friends. Christ came to secure our peace. And I think we hear that sometimes and we think like cosmically or legally, like there was a separation between us and God, there was an offense, and now that's over, right? There's a ceasefire in effect. Jesus came to secure peace in our hearts, to bring us into the everlasting rest of God. And that doesn't start when you die. It starts the moment you receive Jesus to be your king. Christ came to secure our peace. It's relationally given, it's personally experienced, it's eternal, and it is worry killing. That's what he's offering us. And this is the hope for those who are in Christ. Paul wrote this to people who needed good news. Man, I can't imagine growing up in that age. Before Emperor Constantine, this is several hundred years after this church, uh, the church knew nothing but persecution. They had emperors who used them as torches at parties. 
They suffered things I cannot imagine. That's who Paul's writing to. They were worried about Paul, who's their leader, their father in the faith. He's in prison. They don't know what's gonna happen to him. There's people coming from the outside, imposing bad theology, saying lies about God. They have so many things to be worried about. And Paul says, rejoice, the Lord is at hand. His peace will be your guard. We come in today with many things to worry about. I don't know about you, but like, I've had to literally set very hard limits for myself on how often I can be on my phone because the deluge of bad news is often too much for me to handle. Every week there's a new shooting. There's a new war. There's a new crisis. And if I'm not careful, I can get my eyes so fixed on these things that I forget the Lord is at hand. He's already won. But our inheritance is peace. This world is a sinking ship, right? It's full of holes that we helped make. And without help, we are doomed and there is reason to worry. But Christ has come in the the worship of his grace and he has offered rescue. He has offered salvation to any who would heed his call. And there are three types of people. There are gonna be those who can't see him and they're gonna worry until the end. There are gonna be those who want to ignore their pain and party until the end. And then there are gonna be those who heed the call and are freed. You guys, we are free in Jesus' name. We don't have to carry the worry of this world. Even though it's real, even though it's scary, our God has won. And so as we close, my question would be, do you have his strength in you by his presence in you? Because if not, you can. It's really simple. Jesus, be the Lord of my heart. I repent of my sin, Lord. I wanna walk with you. I need your rule. If you do have that, I wanna encourage you. This is a lifetime journey because we are always going to be invited to go back into worry. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I will say, rejoice. Be steadfast. Don't beat yourself up when you start to fall back into those patterns. Turn to Jesus. Give thanks. Let your requests be made known to God because our God loves you. I promise you this, he will only ever give you good things. And anything he doesn't give you, it's not good for you. That's just how he works. We live in a world that is drowning in big problems and bad solutions. We live in a world that breeds anxiety. And some of us in here this morning have been in a constant battle for peace. And too often, you felt like you're losing the war. But the hope of God's word is that in the midst of trouble, the Lord is at hand. And because he is at hand, peace and not worry will rule our hearts. That's the truth. And my encouragement for each of you is set your minds and hearts on that. Be relentless in the pursuit of peace through your meditation upon thanksgiving for and turning to our ever-present help in Jesus. He's at hand. Let's pray.